Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Please keep in mind that there's always two sides, sometimes more, to every story. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs. Not everybody will agree with them. I never want to tell any guest what to say or what not to say, so there will always be others that see it differently, and I understand that. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this, my own podcast. I'm still pinching myself. Thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. It's great to have a polygraph, but firstly, not everyone's going to consent. So I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great to have the skill sets to work out when people were lying in the absence of a polygraph? You know how I talk about going down paths sometimes where you don't know where they lead and it's about taking a risk going down a path which is a bit unfamiliar, maybe out of your comfort zone, and you just don't know where it might end. Well, in 1996, Steve Van Apren, my guest today, he took a path which gave him an opportunity right out of left field. Steve was a detective with Victoria Police. Look, we knew of each other, but we didn't know each other as such. Victoria Police wouldn't fund a trip over to the US for Steve to attend the FBI Academy in Quantico, I think it is, in Virginia, to learn more about his passion in psychological profiling and what made serial killers and sex offenders tick. So he funded himself. And whilst over there, Steve was introduced to polygraph uh, lie detector testing, and he returned to Australia as the first Victorian police officer to become a qualified polygraph examiner. But then Steve started to think how much more effective it would be to have the skills to determine when somebody is lying without using a polygraph. And this then became his passion. 
one of the many skills he learned from the FBI and subsequently the LAPD was that there's no such thing as a bad interviewee. It's just a bad interviewer. Talk about pressure. I'm under it. I hope you appreciate the fact out there that I'm putting myself right out there in order for us all to learn a few tips on determining if someone is telling just a few fibs or one big fat lie. Um, Steve has designed a software program to identify facial configurations or, as he calls them, micro-expressions. So it's no surprise that many airlines are interested in this program due to the obvious advantages of being able to identify passengers who may be lying about answers they give prior to boarding a plane. Steve's worked on a lot of high-profile cases and investigations, but it was when he mentioned being approached by Jennifer Lopez's manager, his interactions regarding Kim Kardashian, Azaria Chamberlain, Robert Farquhar's, and that really piqued my interest. What an interesting dinner party guest he'd be. And so, Steve, with that uh, introduction, thank you very much for your valuable time. And in saying that, do you think I'm genuine in what I'm saying there? What what can you tell by what I'm saying about how uh, I'm looking forward to uh, spending some time with you and your valuable time? Can you tell anything about the inclination in my voice? Well, firstly, thanks, Narelle, for having me. Um, one of the things I look for is how people communicate and their methodology in communicating. So what I can tell, it's very well scripted, well, very well uh, researched and quite genuine <laughs> because what we look for is um, baseline or benchmark and deviations from that. So I didn't see any or hear any of that, I should say. So, uh, yes, I believe you're sincere. <laughs> well, that's good. So we can move on. Um, <laughs> thanks, Steve. I assume there's some negativity and suspicion in polygraph testing, I suppose due to people's reluctance to try something new. Did did you get um, met by a brick wall when you tried to explain how it all worked or, or was it accepted? Yeah, look, uh, I, I fell into polygraph testing purely by accident. Um, like you said in your introduction, I was always interested in psychological profiling, what made serial killers and serial sex offenders tick. So... Interestingly enough, uh, when I went over to the behavioural sciences unit back in those days in Quantico, uh, the more I learned about profiling, the more interested I became in uh, behavioural interviewing. I wanted to know why some of the detectives that I worked with were not very good at uh, reading people or detecting deception. They, um, that, in fact, they were terrible. And research actually borns that out. Research shows that we're very easily influenced by personalities or people during the interview. So even though we may have a gut feel, we um, often um, uh, influenced. I remember interviewing uh, Robert Lowe in relation to the murder of uh, Cherie Beasley, and he looked like a typical grandfather, um, and he uh, was clinically diagnosed as a psychopath. Um, and by all you know, um, uh, you know, introductions and dealings I had with him, um, yeah, you wouldn't think he would be responsible for killing a young girl and then uh, dumping her body in a drain. So. I, uh, I I was always interested in you know the process of um, you know what makes people do what they do and why they do it. So um, that was what sort of got me into uh, the, the the work I do. But 
I sort of fell into the polygraph side by accident. I was there and they said, uh, it's a couple of FBI polygraph examiners said, look, do you use polygraph testing in your police department? Back then we didn't. And I said, no. And they said, well, you should come over and train with us. You can take the technology back. So effectively, that's what I did. Um, and so I originally trained at Western Oregon University. I did my uh, internship with LAPD, um, the uh, US Secret Service, LA County Sheriffs and the FBI field office in LA. Um, and then... I actually brought the officer in charge of LAPD polygraph, you know, where I did my internship, uh, with me to do a, a presentation of force command. And back then, it was interesting. There, there was a lot of uh, opposition, but I think it was probably because because people didn't understand the application and utility. And, look, it's not a panacea for every investigation, but... Um, I eventually left the police and Ron Idles from the Homicide Squad contacted me a couple of weeks after I left and they said, look, we've got a number of uh, homicide cases we'd like you to work on. Uh, 82 homicide cases later, I'm still consulting my services back to the Homicide Squad. So, look, I my view about polygraph testing is it uh, can be a, a valuable investigative aid, uh, but it would never usurp the role of a you know, thorough investigation or, you know, I mean, we're always looking, as you know, Noel being a police detective yourself in the past, uh, any type of forensic, scientific, medical or cooperative evidence that uh, can obviously prove the, the prosecution case. And penultimately, it's up to the jury to determine guilt or innocence on the evidence before it, and uh, not necessarily a single polygraph test. So I'm usually consulted for two reasons. One is to either do a polygraph test or to analyse a record of interview um, to determine whether or not the person may be uh, lying. And we'll, we'll talk about that shortly, I guess. Mm. Yeah, well, that actually really interests me. So when uh, Ron is a, um, a great f- uh, friend of ours, we all love Ron, um, when Ron asked you to help with the homicide cases, was that um, listening to interviews and giving your, um, I don't know, your expertise on where you think they went wrong or what is your... Um, What's your skill with uh, with Ron and helping the prom- homicide cases? What do you do? So effectively, in the early days, uh, I was contacted by Ron and said, look, uh, Ron said, we've got a, a couple of cases. Now, Ron and I um, share uh, common beliefs in behavioural analysis and interviewing techniques. Um, he trained uh, with RCMP, Royal Can- uh, Canadian Mounted Police, um, and I did my training uh obviously with a number of uh, law enforcement bodies and uh, I was always interested in the behaviour analysis. So we we had a shared connection there about uh, insofar as, and you said when you brought this up during the introduction, um, I think I I spent, uh, you know, a number of years in two police departments uh, and detective training school. What I realised was there was not a lot of training back then in interviewing. So what would happen is you'd put the points of proof to the uh, potential suspect, you'd negate any defences and you would, uh, you know, trace up any alibis or, you know, uh, depending on what the case is. Um, So it was very structured, you know, covering points of proof of a particular offence. But what we know through research is the three reasons why people confess to crimes is number one, they like the interviewer. Number two, um, to get it off their chest, believe it or not. Number three, they believe the evidence is so overwhelmingly against them that further resistance is futile. Now, what I learned in uh, a different behavioural analysis interviewing techniques is when you blame somebody for their behaviour, you make it substantially more difficult for them to confess to a crime. 
And I've seen this in action myself. I remember working uh, at Flemington CRB and one of the detectives I worked with when we were interviewing a a well-known pedophile said, if you don't tell us what you did to that child, you're going to get locked up, you're going to go to jail, your wife's going to leave you, your children don't want to talk, won't want to talk to you anymore, you'll lose your job. Now, it just gave him a thousand reasons why not to confess, not one reason why he should or could. So I become very... um, uh, interested in the psychology of uh, what makes people, you know, admit, uh, and I mean, you know, in, uh, to their involvement in particular cases. But it's understanding the human psyche and understanding. I mean, you, if you, you know, I'm interviewing you for a, a, a robbery or a homicide or whatever. If you can uh, confess to me, you, there's ramifications. There's, there's, uh, um, you know, possible jail time. So you have to understand why people do what they do, what motivates them. But secondly, I can't uh, make a, a just a legally justifiable reason for their behaviour. So I might say, you know what, Narelle, you know, thing, uh, look, uh, people do silly things. Sometimes they make mistakes. That doesn't make you a bad person. A lot of the people I deal with are bad people. So uh, what we need to do is work out you know, what the issue is and any underlying circumstances because I've been involved in cases where good people have done bad things. That doesn't make you a bad thing. That's why there are razors on the end of pencils. So so when I go into interview, um, and Ron uh, uses the same technique, it's understanding uh, the personality and um, using a human approach. Uh, like uh, it's amazing what people will tell you if you ask the right question, but more importantly, you build a rapport. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's integral. Yeah, and I like um, what you're saying about those three reasons. Um, You're right because if you don't like somebody, you're never going to find that connection and for them to feel comfortable to talk to you about anything. So um, that is really if you can't get over that, if you can't um, establish rapport, firstly, you've got no hope, have you? Yeah, but I, I, I've trained investigators and intelligence agencies and done presentations to FBI and Secret Service all around the world. And one of the things I say is that, um, you know, who knows more about their involvement in a crime than the person sitting opposite you? So uh, firstly, we have to ask the right questions. I, I remember um, I was involved in a particular homicide case and one of the det- – and the, I won't go into too much detail because it's still pending – but. Um, one of the detectives said to me, said, Steve, look, we would like you to do a polygraph test. The uh, deceased was found in a dam. Now, I read the pathologist's report and the pathologist couldn't establish a cause of death. And uh, they said, can you ask uh, our uh, suspect whether or not he uh, strangled the victim? And I said, well, that's a bad question. He said, why? Surely if he killed him, you know how he killed him. I said, well, that's not actually the issue. I said, because we haven't got an autopsy as to the cause of death, a result as to cause of death, how do you know he didn't hold him underwater and he drowned? But if I ask him the question, um, did you um, strangle the victim? And he knows he held him underwater. He's going to pass a polygraph test. So I think in any interview, your questions have to be clear and concise so there's no room for misinterpretation or ambiguity. Now, I remember several years ago, I was approached by 60 Minutes, uh, Richard Carlton, and he asked me to do a test on Greg Domasavich as in so far as his involvement in um, Jaden Leskey's disappearance. Now, this was before they subsequently found Jaden's body in Blue Rock Dam nearly a year later. Um, And... One of the questions I was uh, um, 
Richard Carlton said, he said, look, can you ask um, uh, Domasevich if he knows for certain where Jaden's body is? I said, well, that's a bad question. And he said, why? I said, well, just imagine, what if he threw Jaden's body off a bridge and it's 20 kilometres down the river? He may legitimately not know where his body is. So in any test, um, or any interview for that matter, if your question is not clear and concise, it will allow a deceptive person room to wriggle out of. So I think it's imperative that, A, um, the questions are clear and concise, but B, and more importantly, and we were talking about this earlier, the first thing I teach investigators or you know, intelligence people is to benchmark a person's behaviour and then look for deviations from that person's behaviour because how on earth are you going to notice deviations such as you know, micro-expressions, distress signals, hand-to-face masking, concealment, blocking behaviours, changes in context, changing in, changes in content. Uh, we know truthful people take ownership. Deceptive people create distance, disassociation and separation in their language. So I think good interviewers are not just question askers but analysts of human behaviour. It's interesting you say that because on your website I was having a look at it prior to talking to you and and there's a a fascinating um, example, I suppose, where um, uh, President, um, what's his name, that I did not have sex with um, Monica Lewinsky. Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton. And you analyse his expressions, his hand movements. Oh, that was fascinating. Can you just tell us about that? Because I just thought it was so insightful. Well, firstly, what you need to do is uh, there are a number of areas that you you really need to pay attention to or focus on, and that is uh, verbal, nonverbal, and paralinguistic. Um, And verbal, obviously, what people say and how they say it. So I can lie to you with words, but often my body language is much more overt. So I need to look for conflict or contradiction between what a person is saying and what their body language is in fact stating. That's the first thing. Um, So I need to look for uh, not just contradict. Uh, contradictions in their body language, but uh, uh, how they use words to either uh, confirm their uh, commitment to their denial or uh, create distance in in, uh, that uh, separation. So there were a number of concerns. One was, um, firstly, the distancing. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Now, everyone knows that he knew who she was. Um, Why not just say uh, uh, Miss Lewinsky or Monica or that woman is uh, deliberate uh, distancing. Secondly, um, I I always have a problem when people finger point. But what the disconnect there was, um, he he said, you know, um, I did not have relations with that woman. I need to go back and work for the American people. Now, when he was actually... I would have loved to have been in that press conference because there was a real disconnect because he was actually pointing in one direction but looking in a totally different direction. Now, when um, I interview people, I'll I'll look for uh, that deviation. So often the question becomes a threatening stimulus. So if I'm interviewing somebody and let's just say, and I do this on stage when I do public speaking, I get people up on stage and I'll get them to tell me a story or something like that and then I'll uh, look for uh, certain things in that story. And I can only do that after I've benchmarked and look for changes. But uh, And and also uh, we know when a person line lies, their blink rate increases six to eightfold after the delivery of the deception. So it's, it's more a sympathetic and slash parasympathetic response. So, um, And we also need to look for blocking gestures, which he engaged in as well. Mm, fascinating. Uh, I never knew about this is why. Pension. This is why I have no friends, Narelle. 
<laughs> Gee, you'd be under pressure going to sale. What about your, mate, your mates must love you going to a pub with them? Well, you know, I play a lot of golf and uh, my golfing buddies know better to, to uh, cheat on their scores when I'm recording them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, speaking about Ron Idles, I don't suppose you've ever seen the interview. It was one of the most powerful interviews I have ever seen and it caused a lot of um, division within VicPol and it was Ron interviewed an Indian man who'd killed a little boy and put him in his boot and driven him to the back of the airport. Have you ever seen Ron talking about just um, uh, just powerful oh, what, rapport building? And uh, Have you ever seen that, by the way? Yeah, I have. I, I haven't seen that interview, but I've actually seen uh, several of Ron's interviews. Um, and the, the, the purpose, and Ron uses behaviour analysis uh, questions, which I do too. Um, the FBI uses them. They're very powerful. I'll, I'll give you a great example. One might be, um, let's just say you're involved in a crime. Uh, Narelle, what do you think should happen to the person who did this? Now, think about that. Uh, question on its own. Usually you find a truthful person who's not involved uh, will really tell you what they think should happen to that person, whereas a deceptive person who may be involved is less likely to be as harsh on themselves. And they'll often come up with a justification as opposed to a denial. So uh, there's a big difference between uh, justification and denial, which I saw in the the Chappelle Corby thing. Uh, A denial is no, no, I didn't. A justification is why would I do something like that? I'm not the sort of person that would do something like that. There's a big clear-cut difference. And you would have seen this, uh, you know, when you were a detective, when you interviewed people. Um, but uh, the, uh, the, another uh, behavioural analysis question might be, um, tell me, who do you think wouldn't do this? Now, let's just say, um, you know, there's been a theft in a workplace or something. Usually you find truthful people will eliminate people they know, like and trust and know wouldn't do it. So, you know, it wouldn't be Narelle because she's not that sort of person. wouldn't be Graham because Graham wasn't even there on the day. wouldn't be Paul because uh, I know Paul wasn't anywhere near the office. Now, the last thing a deceptive person is likely to do is eliminate others, thereby leaving the focus or the spotlight on who's remaining, in fact, themselves. And usually you find truthful people are very quick uh, in um, clearing themselves. Um, so how people react to behavioural analysis questions is very important. And one of, and one of the most important things uh, questions was, um, were you involved? or did you shoot, or whatever the the issue is. And I think good interviewers ask the direct questions after they've benchmarked and looked for deviations from that normative behaviour, and it can uh, take place in many forms. That's funny you say that because I've been involved in a number of interviews where you go around and around and and the actual question is wasn't asked did you kill or did you rape or whatever it be because they're so um we um you know I'm putting myself in that um think uh, stage as well like I it's funny how people just don't actually ask the question did you do it or you know as I said yeah Because I think what's important there is to see what the reaction is. And often the question to a deceptive person becomes a threat and stimulus and we see uh, autonomic responses thereafter. Now, this is why it's so important to benchmark because sometimes you might interview somebody who, uh, you know, comes from a country where, you know, they're scared of authority um, and they uh, may lack confidence or scared and are nervous. So that's why it's so important to benchmark or baseline and then look for deviations from that normative behaviour. Look, usually where you find truthful people, um, and I've seen this many times, 
will often be cooperative. And, and like, I'll give you an example. If I asked you what you did this morning from the time you woke up to the time we started talking today, through memory and sensory input, you'd be able to tell me everything you did, everything you said, everything you heard, smells, sensory uh, input. Um, why? Because you live through them. Whereas if you're fabricating or embellishing or creating a false memory, for every one lie you tell, you have to invent another two, three, four to protect yourself from the first one. So neurologically, a truthful person doesn't have to go through that that process. And we know through research, when a person lies, it creates a lot of cognitive load. So they they don't want to uh, get caught up. They don't want to miss uh, you know misconstrue what they previously said. They don't want to contradict what they previously said and uh, truthful people can tell you what happened unless there's neurological issues or you know uh, head trauma or something like that but truthful people can tell you um, uh, not only what they did what they said what they heard what they felt conversations took place because it's easy because they record they can do it from front to back back to front whereas a deceptive person has to create that false memory they have to wonder or be careful of course about what they previously said to investigators but what is really difficult to do is not only concoct a story, but if you're making up a story about a conversation you had with somebody, you have to be able to have the ability to lie twice. So you have to lie about the event, then you have to lie about a conversation that never took place. And it takes a lot of cognitive processing. Hmm. And not very many people are that smart, I assume. Well, you know, I'm often asked, who who do you think make the best liars? Uh, politicians? No, not at all. Um, I've seen uh, many politicians, uh, you know, uh, you know, get caught up in their lies. My view is the best uh, liars without doubt, bar none, are pedophiles because they're very good at manipulating not just their victims but their treatment providers and everyone else. So they are living the lie and they are very, in my experience, having interviewed many pedophiles, they're very adept at uh, maintaining the status quo and um, and that deception. Mm, fascinating. Um, I'm going to ask you a very direct question. Chappelle Corby, guilty or innocent? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've, I've got to be careful how I answer this question because. Uh, oh, do uh, you? Being, okay, sorry. Well, is that no, 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 no. I'm entitled to an opinion. It's just because um, I was involved with a, a Channel Seven uh, interview and um, Mercedes Corby uh, sued uh, Channel Seven and, and so on. So, look. Um, I did a polygraph test on Jodie Power. Jodie Power was uh, uh, Chappelle's, uh, one of her best friends. She was a blonde girl that was often seen sitting alongside her in court and it was about whether or not uh, the family had asked her to participate in you know, certain activities and that. Um, I, my concern um, with um, uh, the story was uh, a lot of it didn't add up and uh, there were uh, a lot of... Um, you know, uh, inconsistencies in the story. Uh, but having said that, um, the police investigation was somewhat flawed as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, I, I, I believe uh, I agree with the uh, verdict and that was guilty. Yeah, okay. Steve, if you're, uh, as your lie detector, you have the procedures and programs that you use, have they ever been tested in court? And if not, why not? Yeah, with polygraph. Um, I worked on a case, Andrew Mallard. Uh, he spent 11 years uh, in Casarina Prison in West Australia for the murder of uh, Pamela Lawrence. It was quite a brutal murder. 
He'd always uh, denied that he was involved. Um, and usually I'm um, consulted by police departments, and in this case it was uh, by the defence, and they never found a murder weapon. She was uh, bludgeoned to death and then her body was uh, dragged out to the back of a, a shop called Flora Metallica, I think it was from memory. Um, and um, I was asked to do a polygraph. In fact, I did two polygraph tests on Mallard. He passed both of them, and they um, decided they wanted to take it to the uh, or wanted to have my evidence admitted. So they took it on a, uh, to the Court of Criminal Appeal, uh, three Supreme Court judges, and I uh, gave my evidence and uh, was cross-examined and they brought some of the um, world-leading experts into the case. Um, and it was a three, uh, it was a, a verdict against the admissibility of polygraph testing. And then they took it to the High Court and it was a 2-1 majority verdict against. And as you know, the lower courts are bound by the decision of the High Courts and those type of things. Now, I don't have a problem, surprisingly, people are surprised when I say this, I don't have a problem with the fact that polygraph uh, results are not admitted into court for a number of reasons. Number one, our legal system is predicated on the basis it will be judged by our peers um, and the role of a jury is to determine guilt or innocence based on all the available uh, evidence, uh, forensic, scientific, medical, whatever it may be, gunshot residue, DNA, blood, whatever, um, not on a single polygraph test. So the the, the fear is, is the uh, a polygraph test could usurp the role of a jury. My second concern about admitting polygraph uh, evidence in cases is that I've seen some terrible polygraph tests conducted. Um, so I think, you know, we're, we're moving ahead in that field. Um, I, I use eye detect, which measures ocular reactivity when a person lies. So we look for blink rate, eye fixation, pupil dilation, and a lot of other things that are very difficult to control. In a polygraph, sometimes people may have poor respiratory cycles, poor cardio or, or move, which distorts tracings and so on. So there are new technologies that are rapidly coming along. Hello, guess who? Just a quick interruption here to let you know you can now become a Narelle Fraser Interviews Patreon. How exciting! Simply go to www.patreon, that's P for Peter, A T R E O N for Narelle.com and search for Narelle Fraser Interviews. And to all of you out there, who continue to support me. Thank you so much. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Wow. Nice. Yeah. 
What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You know, I often talk about gut feelings as a detective, but I think with what you've learned... You're going to throw that ideology right out the window, aren't you? Well, contrary to popular belief, I wrote a chapter in uh, my book, The Truth About Lies, and and I talked about um, intuition. And believe it or not, intuition is pretty close to the mark. In fact, um, okay. I mean, you know, we, we go to a crime scene. I can go to a crime scene. I can tell you pretty quickly, as a lot of you know, seasoned investigators can, uh, whether the uh, the crime scene may have been staged, whether the offender spent time with the victim post mortem, whether the, the you know the body was moved, and, and so on. Uh, you can tell a lot from, as you know, blood spatter, uh, all that type of thing, blood in motion, blah blah blah. Um, so, look, I what do we do? We get a crime scene. We we form a hypothesis of what we think may have happened. Uh, we seek, you know, forensic evidence to, to determine whether, you know, our hypothesis or, you know, witness testimony or, you know, gunshot residue, or biological trace evidence or supports our hypothesis or not. And one of the problems I've seen, I've worked on cases where sometimes investigators do get tunnel vision. I've worked on several cases in the homicide squad where, you know, half the crew are pointing in one direction and other, half of the crew pointing in another. So I think... I'm an evidence man. I've always been an evidence man. But, you know, sometimes you may interview a witness that becomes a potential offender by, uh, you know, their inconsistencies in their stories or, or whatever. Um, so, look, I, I'm i of the belief that, um, and, and we know scientifically that our intuition is uh, quite close to the mark. And, in fact, uh, we know through research that women have more evaluation centres in their brain uh, than men. So, um, you know, uh, women are much better looking at, uh, you know, nonverbal cues. It's a, the old uh, argument, and this is what I use on stage or the I talk about is often when a woman is interested in a man, she will bombard him with behavioural cues that signify that interest. The problem is men have no idea. <laughs> men have no idea what to look for. So we know. <laughs> so we know that uh, men are not really good at picking up nonverbal cues, but it can be a skill set that can be, it can be learned. So what are those signs that are? a woman will give that the man doesn't pick up on? What are some of those uh, signs or conversations? 
Well, it can be well, a lot of it's subconscious. So, you know, as humans, uh, uh, when we're attracted to somebody, we engage in subconscious uh, preening behaviour. So it could be uh, preening with the hair, good eye contact, good frontal alignment, closeness. Um, you know, feeling comfortable. Where sometimes, if somebody feels uncomfortable, they'll create distance. They'll put a handbag in between them. Uh, they'll turn sideways. They won't certainly won't be touching and, and so on. So, um, uh, you know, in fact, a, a number of physiological changes take place from the endorphins and dopamines that are released in our brain when we're uh, physically uh, attracted to someone. There's a lot of chemistry taking place. So often we're not even cognizant of what our body uh, language is uh, stating, but it's uh, pretty obvious. Um, But, uh, you know, um, women are more in tune to reading, uh, you know, body language cues. uh, They have nearly double the amount of valuation centres in their brain than men. Are there many women that are... um, uh that do lie detector testing? I had one lady that used to work for me uh, in Queensland, Crystal. Um, in Australia, there's two. Okay. There's two. Yep. Right. And how many men? Uh, I think there's around about oh, half a dozen, six now. Oh, okay. Right. And when you came back in 96 or 97, you were the only person in Australia, is that right? Uh, there was one other person, um, although he was um, pretty much semi-retired. But, yep. you know, I, I went down the path, I mean, with polygraph, it's great to have a polygraph, but firstly, um, not everyone's going to consent to, uh, you know, polygraph test. So I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great to have the skill sets to work out when people were lying in the absence of a polygraph? Um, and so I would look for a number of things and, and how people use language. A great example was John Sharp. I had a journalist ring me up and said, Steve, I'm, doing, I'm about to do a, a, um, a doorstop on a on uh, John Sharp. Now, for your listeners, John Sharp uh, had reported his wife and his um, uh, three-year-old, his pregnant wife and his three-year-old daughter missing. Um, it was a, a disappearance down the Mornington Peninsula. And at that stage, they had no idea. I mean, there were certain signs, but uh, he may have been involved. And as you know, most uh, domestic homicides, or most homicides are domestic-related and uh, usually start from the nucleus and work your way out. Anyway, um, so this journalist said, Steve, I'm going to uh, do a doorstop and I'm going to ask um, him some questions. What should I ask? I said, ask a direct question. Did you, did you murder your wife? And he said... Uh, a quote, I'm a little bit worried now because uh, police are making uh, inquiries and investigations. As soon as I heard that, I thought, whoa, I've got a major problem with that response for two reasons. One is, why would he say, I'm a little bit worried, police are now making inquiries? Hang on a minute. If your pregnant wife and daughter went missing, you would anticipate or expect that's exactly what would be happening and you would want that happening and you would encourage that to happen. Um uh, and I remember Robert Farquharson, uh, when he was first spoken to by the police after tragically his three boys drowned in a car as it uh, left the road and went into a dam in Winchelsea, said, what's going to happen to me? Now think about that. Just think about that statement, what's going to happen to me? That would be the last thing in the world a parent who tragically lost their children or child or children would be concerned because there's nothing the court system could do to you or the legal system that could be more harrowing than tragically losing your three boys in an accident. Hmm. 
He was more worried about what would happen to him than anything else. And um, if we cross uh, the border and go up to Queensland, um, when we had the case uh, up in Queensland in relation to the Baden-Clay uh, case, uh, Jared Baden-Clay, um, he was interviewed at another doorstop, and this is why uh, police often encourage, you know, um, uh, um, you know, people to do these uh, interviews. Um, he said, um, I'm really worried about my children. What he didn't say is I'm really worried about our children. Why would you say that? Why would you say I'm really worried about my as opposed to our children? Oh, sorry, my wife. I'm, I, let me clarify that. She, he said I'm really worried about um, our children. <laughs> My children was the, the first thing he said, not our children. Um, and then later on, as you know, they discovered her um, her body, his wife's body. Uh, he also had a massive scratch down the side of his face that said it was a, a shaving a scratch, which uh, looked like he was shaving with a machete. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah that, um, that's well detected, Steve. Um, hey, I'm not sure if you're aware or not, but I was intimately involved with um, John Sharp and that, um, that case, um, I, I, um, yeah, that the minute that job came in, and this is what I talk about with, uh, with a lot of people about gut feelings. Like when that first that job first came in, we all, I think we all sort of felt it's got to be him. And when we saw him, and I'm not saying this, you know, this is an evidence, obviously, but when we saw him, I just had, I think we all just knew. He'd done it. Well, as I said, it was a gut feeling. But, yeah, yeah, I was involved in the search down at the tip and and found Anna. So, Mm. uh, yeah, John Sharp, um, yeah, you've certainly um, piqued my interest there because he was was a really different man, a real weed, you know, just. Yeah, but not just that. I mean, Mm. the emotions were in the wrong place. Uh, Typical crocodile tears. Um, You know, um, one of the – I see this a lot usually with homicide cases, uh, you know, uh, the the person who's lost a loved one will often be in touch with the investigators, you know, seeking, you know, progress. How's the investigation going? What's happening? Are there any breakthroughs? Mm. All that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, I don't believe that happened in his case. Um, But also not just that, um, you know, there were a number of uh, unusual behaviours. And you're right, we we picked that up with gut feel and then we searched for evidence um, and whatnot. And you would remember that um, emails were written apparently from uh, Anna and his email account to her mother. Now, I've seen those emails and they don't look like a daughter uh, was uh, you know communicating with the mother, and uh, so obviously went to some effort to make it look like uh, she was uh, still alive when he knew she was not. Hmm. Yeah, oh, it takes me right back. Uh, you talk about three areas that you look at to determine if someone's telling the truth or not. Can you tell us about them? Yep, uh, I briefly mentioned it before. So we're looking at verbal. Um, so uh, how people use words to either communicate their involvement or lack of. So I, I look for personal pronouns. Um, you know, if I said, you know, what did you do uh, this morning? Uh, and you said, went to the shop. I'd be concerned about that because you haven't filled in the gap. So you wouldn't say I went to the shop or we went to the shop. So usually you find truthful people will 
in, include, you know, information, content, detail, structure, times, places, feelings, emotions, because they can draw on those because they've lived through them. Um, so how people use words, whether they uh, you know, involve themselves or create a false narrative um, that uh, obviously can be picked apart later on. So that's the first uh, thing we look for. Second, uh, like I mentioned, body language, the conflict or contradiction. So I look for micro expressions, distress signals, hand-to-face masking, concealment or blocking behaviours, anything that's inconsistent. And how do we do that? Well, one of the things uh, I do is during the rapport building stage, I'll get them talking about themselves. And I might ask them questions where historically they have to recall uh, historical events. I might say, you know, tell me about your first job. Um, uh, let's just say they, when they're recalling information, they may look up to their left four times. Uh, and then I'll, I'll, I want to solidify that. I'll ask them a couple more questions where I know that they're recalling historical ev- uh, events. So I'll look for those. And then later on, if I ask questions and all of a sudden they're looking uh, down to the right uh, in a, the opposite direction, but their body language is also inconsistent, then that may be a red flag because they may be accessing the creative side of their brain, which is responsible for you know uh, creating uh, uh, something that doesn't exist and we, as we know when we recall information sometimes we can recall it with crystal clarity other times we need some sort of prompt so sometimes I find deceptive people especially if they're rehearsed will create a huge amount of of information and detail, but when it's tested, uh, then we'll see changes in body language. But I, I often believe the questions become the threatening stimulus, and I want to see whether or not a are they answering the question or are they sidestepping the issue, answering with another question, being evasive, omissive, or dismissive, or uh, are they you know answering the questions directly taking into account a, a, a level of anxiety being interviewed by the police or nervousness or, uh, you know, lack of confidence. So we have to take that into account. The third area is what we call paralinguistic. That relates to tone, pitch, voice modulation, response, latency, ums and ahs. So uh, sometimes when you're interviewing somebody, they may say, I swear to God, I didn't do that, I swear to God, I swear to God. Well, if I'm interviewing somebody and during the rapport, they use that type of um, uh, response and then I ask a question and they still use it. Well, that's, that doesn't help me because that's part of their normal uh, behaviour, their normal vernacular, their normal uh, communication process. So what I need to look for is things that may be uh, contradictory to what they've said previously or how they say it. And sometimes, you know, tonal changes can be very uh, important because you, when you think about it, if I'm going to fabricate a story and I want to buy your want you to buy my believability and credibility. Uh, what will happen is I have to convince you that what I'm saying is in fact factually correct. So um, often we pay more attention into uh, providing a believable story, but we pay no attention in how we deliver that story. Yeah, and that's where makes the paralinguistic sides come into it. Makes a lot of sense. Um, I know we're a bit stuck for time today, so um, I'll just move on to can you tell us about your work in training profilers in terrorism? Yeah. Um, Two years ago, uh, I've been doing a bit of work with Emirates Airlines and uh, I did a presentation in Sydney and I was approached uh, to train uh, profilers in uh, Dubai back in the time when Donald Trump had mandated that anyone entering um, uh, America from any six, I think it was six from memory, nominated uh, Muslim countries had to undergo additional screening. So I was asked to put together a training program for their profilers in some of the, uh, the queues and what not to look for. Um, so that was two years ago, and I'm actually flying back in uh, uh, this Friday night 
to uh, been invited again to speak uh, about a new technology we've been working on that analyses facial expressions and micro expressions. Um, so yeah, with that been quite a uh, intensive uh, period but um, they're very good at what they do uh, you know it's really interesting because I can get groups of investigators and I, I find you know I'll show videotapes and I'll say what do you think do you think there's a degree of deception or not and the problem is people often get caught on the story and they don't pay attention I think good interviewers are very good at observing uh responses and behaviours together with inconsistencies. So it's a combination, like I mentioned before, being uh, uh, not just a question asker but analysing their responses at the time of the question and seeing or looking for any deviations or changes from that normative. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, Now, there's a couple of circumstances that you mentioned uh, that I thought we'd uh, the listeners might like to uh, hear about and one of them was when you were approached to determine uh, the body language and truthfulness of words and expressions being exhibited by Kim Kardashian. Can you tell us a bit about that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, look, I, uh, uh, I, it's funny because I, 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 I've never watched an episode of Keeping Up With The Kardashians. I was approached by Likewise. a um, – <laughs> I was approached quite – interestingly, by um, um, a television network in the US and they said, look, Steve, we're, we want to fly you to, uh, here to Burbank in California and we would like to interview you in relation to the Kardashians. And I said, sorry, uh, in relation to what? And they said, look, I, and I, I had to confess, I'd never watched an episode. And they said, that's fine, we'll send you over a box of uh, DVDs so you can watch them on the plane on the, on the flight over. So one episode was... Um, uh, apparent from memory, uh, she uh, Kim Kardashian dived into the water with wearing one of these fifty thousand dollar earrings, as you do, <laughs> and lost one of them. Yeah, and uh, she had been recently married to a guy. I, his name escapes me. I think it was Humphreys, someone, uh, and I think it was probably one of the shortest marriages in history. And uh, they wanted to know whether or not that, I thought it was a, a sham marriage, uh, judging by the responses. And when I was there, then they threw all, me, all these other questions about different celebrities and personalities, uh, everything from whether or not um, Nicole Kidman uses uh, Botox, because she was once asked, uh, "Do you use Botox?" And her response was, "I'm perfectly natural. That's great," but she didn't answer the question. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, so that's uh, how that come about. So watching that one episode on the flight was an hour of my life. I will never get back. <laughs> yeah, I'm hearing you. I'm hearing you. Um, what about the request you got through Joe Lowe's manager? What was that about? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I was doing some work for CNN uh, in the States because I had a manager based in New York and uh, I was doing a lot of speaking over there. And um, I was interviewed by a uh, uh, CNN's chief medical reporter, a guy called Sanjay Gupta, who's a neurologist actually by, by profession, and uh, he was interviewing me about, you know, what are some of the things I look for, some of the cases I've worked on and so on. And we, it was pre-recorded and then um, and it was in uh, about, oh, about six years, five, six years ago, and uh, Jennifer Lopez happened to be watching. I didn't know this. My manager rang up and um, she was quite excited when she told me um, Jennifer Lopez uh, watched you on CNN and uh, would like to meet you and sign you up to her television production company. Back then she had two production companies, uh, New York in Productions and JLo Enterprises, um, and her business partner at the time was a guy by the name of Simon. This is quite funny. Uh, we're in uh, Los Angeles and we had to go to her office and um, 
uh, one of uh, the managers I was working with at the time got the address wrong, and so we kept JLo waiting for over an hour. <laughs> um, but uh, so eventually uh, I got there. She was doing. She had to go off and do a, a choreography for a world tour back then. She was also a judge at American Idol. Um, long story short, uh, she signed. They signed me up to her production company. Um, at the time, we were negotiating with uh, CI Discovery in Washington, D.C. for a new crime show, so, which is what we're working on here in Australia at the moment. But, uh, yeah, so you never know which path your life is going to take you, do you? Boy, Steve, flight from a Victorian detective at Flemington CIB <laughs> to uh, keeping Joe Low waiting for an hour. I love it. Hey, just before we finish, uh, I wanted to talk to you uh, just quickly about Azaria Chamberlain. Uh, what was your involvement in that case? Ray Martin contacted me um, and said, look, uh, we've found a guy who said that he'd actually seen, uh, he, he, him and a few friends were shooting um, you know, rabbits and whatnot uh, in Uluru, which is prohibited you know, uh, hunting and so on. Uh, he said, th- this guy said he'd actually seen um, uh, a czar or a, a baby's body uh, at a, uh, a site where he shot a dingo and um, uh, what had happened was his story was that uh, uh, because the I think there were four of them from memory they were, uh, they were hunting they were not allowed to hunt they uh, some of them had previous criminal convictions they had firearms that weren't registered and so on so his story was that um, uh, somebody one of the uh, people in that party had uh, taken the baby and disposed of it um, and uh, uh, my involvement was to do a polygraph test on the person who uh, told Ray Martin that story. I've always said I, 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 I don't believe uh, right from the start and I've analysed, um, you know, uh, 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 many, many tapes uh, in relation to that and I I remember years ago saying I don't believe uh, that Azari's parents uh, were uh, involved. Uh, Lindy uh, uh, was not involved for a number of reasons. One is um, there are a number of um, uh, ambivalent uh, statements she made during the um, interviews, many interviews. And, you know, as you probably remember, she was quite a stoic lady, um, not exhibiting uh, emotions that most Australians would have expected from a grieving mother who's had uh, their baby taken. But the problem I've got with that is you would know yourself, uh, having delivered death messages and so on, people react differently. It's very difficult to uh, make Mm. a a standard broad swipe and say, well, I expect a person to react this way when they react a different way because you don't know. Everyone's different. You know, fight or flight responses, some people, you know, will break down, some people will be in shock, some people will be, you know, uh, because a lot of Australians didn't see that emotion that they thought would be, um, uh, you know, um, suitable for the circumstances. Typical, typical yeah. yeah. Um, I thought, well, she seems heartless. So automatically, and, and as we know, a lot of the so-called uh, forensic evidence, I mean, the the, um, the so-called um, uh, fetal blood, baby blood uh, in the um, car was actually uh, sound deadener on the firewall. So, um, and a lot of the evidence was contradictory and, uh, but, you know, it got to a stage where it really become a, a national case. But um, I was never, ever convinced uh, that Lindy Chamberlain or her husband was involved in that disappearance. Mm. And isn't it a sh- it, it's shameful that it took 30 years? Yeah. 
for her and her husband to be formally exonerated like that just, you know, and the fact that she did, what she do, four or five years mm. and it it was just, a, yeah, a, a um, pardon me, a balls up. It would be putting it mildly. Mm. Hey, Steve, you talk, you're talking a lot about, you know, you, you've watched Azaria Chamberlain on TV, you, you know, watch, say, Kim Kardashian or whatever. Hypervigilance is a huge issue with police. They experience that as a result of what they do. Are you always consciously or subconsciously assessing people when you're talking to them, listening to them, watching them on TV? Can you ever switch off? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, oh, thank you. I, <laughs> I, you know, everyone has their own um, ways of dealing with things. So, look, I let, let's be realistic. In everyday life, we lie. We lie to impress people. We lie to get ahead. We lie uh, uh, to impress a potential partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, we lie to save face. We lie, we lie for a number of reasons, and they're, they're different types of lies. They're so, uh, pro-social lies, uh, Professor Paul Eklund calls them, uh, little white lies, uh, and then they're more serious lies uh, to protect ourselves from you know wrongdoing or you know bad behaviour. Um, so, look, I, in a social context, um, it's pretty obvious when I see things. But I, you know what? Unless if I'm interviewing somebody for a, a particular homicide case or, you know, a, 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 a criminal issue or something, um, yeah, I, I'm hypervigilant, absolutely. But in a social context, um, I'm quite cognizant. I'll, I'll give you a very funny example. Many years ago I was in uh, New Jersey and um, I'd been doing the, the morning show, talk show uh, circuit, and um, I was invited to this party on this particular night. <laughs> and... Um, you know, there are about 40 people in this uh, place and um, somebody came up to me, one of the producers, and said, uh, sort of introduced me to everyone and said, oh, you know, Steve's the human lie detector and he can work out when people are lying. And I thought, oh, here we go. Yeah, and um, anyway, there was a lady there with her husband and uh, she said, she, what did she say? She said, okay, test me, test me. And she made a statement and the statement was, um, I've never, ever, ever cheated on my husband. And I said, okay. <laughs> and uh, she goes, am I telling the truth? Now, there were two, there were two things I could have done there. One is um, question her further to get to the bottom of it and look for inconsistencies, micro-expressions, distress signals, uh, increased blink rate, prolonged eye closure, all those things that I look for. But what would that have achieved if I questioned her and it, uh, it, it, it uh, you know, I found some uh, cues, nonverbal, you know, paralinguistic. It was inconsistent with what she was saying. So um, it was no win situation because if I said, uh, "Oh no, I believe you," and she knows uh, that she cheated, yeah. which I suspect she did, yeah. but that's another issue. Yeah. Um, uh, then it, it, it was no win. Well, he doesn't know what he's talking about, as opposed to um, the potential damage you could cause in a relationship. Absolutely. So. Very guarded about analysing uh, people in, in a social context or a social environment because I'm quite cognizant of the fact that we all lie for varying reasons. Uh, and, you know, there's been a lot of research, the difference between why men and women lie. Uh, you know, uh, women will often lie to make uh, someone else feel better about themselves, whereas men will often lie to make themselves look better. Um, and we know that, um, you know, there, there are different uh, reasons um, why uh you know, people lie and, and the, the purpose and the, the rationality of lying to um, protect ourselves. So to answer your question, I don't get involved. Um, I could think of so many questions that I could ask you to party, but the fact that the woman asked that question 
to me, I would have thought she had cheated on her husband. That's a bizarre question to ask somebody, isn't it? God. Well, it is. Um, but, I, I, I mean, see, this is the thing. You, you need to look, and I get this from the media all the time, they'll send me a picture of um, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt when they were together looking in opposite directions, and they'll say, what can you say, what can you tell us about their body language? Really? And I can say, and usually I'll say nothing, because that picture was taken within one thousandth of a second. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and they were looking in opp- opposite direction. That means nothing. Send me a video, and then they sent me a video, and it was when they were doing the promos for the movie called Mr Smith, mm. and what I could tell was uh, Angelina Jolie was engaging in hair twirling, printing gestures, you know, flirting. You know, she'd look at him, he'd look at her, and you, you could tell there was something happening. I mean, I think anyone uh, with a functioning cerebellum could have seen the connection. <laughs> You know, you must get some bizarre, bizarre questions. Just somebody sending you a photo of Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. I mean, really? Anyway, look, Steve, we we could talk about uh, all these, you know, different people you've met. It's just a fascinating story. And I think from um, the humble beginnings of uh, being a detective in Victoria Police to what you're doing now, it's that that's where that path has led you. Amazing. So uh, thanks for your time. And your business or your website, Steve, could you just leave us with that? Sure. It's um, uh, Steve Van Apron, which is my name, obviously, stevevanapron.com. And there's a number of videos there if people are interested um, and they can see how I go about dissecting and analysing some well-known cases around the world. Yeah, fantastic. Well, uh, good luck in Dubai, Steve. Uh, I wish... We were, you know, it was a few of us coming with you. Uh, get out of Melbourne, lockdown. But anyway, look, thanks again for your time. Very, very much appreciated. It's been a pleasure. No problems. Let's do it again soon. Love to, Steve. Thank you. Hey, it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.